Wonderful, wasn't it? Yeah. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time. Um, everyone else, we will be in Matthew 6. So if you want to turn there, that would be great. We'll be in Matthew 6. If you're using a Bible underneath the chairs, uh, we're on page 560 in those Bibles. 560. Such an encouragement to see uh, Caroline follow in obedience today. If you have trusted Christ and have not yet been baptized, I would love to visit with you about that. Uh, Andy and Caroline also are uh, joining Church on Mill, so when they come back around and are not sopping wet later after the gathering, you could uh, welcome them as well to the church family. Uh, we said last week that uh, the gospel brings scandalous changes into the lives of of Christ followers. You probably heard some of that in Caroline's story. In particular, last week we talked about the truth from Ephesians chapter 2 that no person is saved by what he or she does. That our problem of sin runs far too deep for self-effort to get us out of it. And yet it is equally true that every person who is saved is saved for what he or she will do. Ephesians 2 says quite plainly that God lays out for us as Christians good works that God would have for us to do. Um, if you missed that last week, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Today, though, we'll be in Matthew 6 looking at another change, another scandalous effect that the gospel has in our lives. Just a couple of comments by way of introduction, then we'll look at the text uh, together. Matthew 6, as uh, Eric said earlier, is in the Sermon on the Mount. And this portion of Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is incredibly beautiful. I hope you'll take time to read it later today if you haven't yet. What do the everyday lives of Christians look like? What, what's normal? What's a baseline for behavior, if you will? What priorities ordinarily mark the citizens of God's kingdom? That's what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are about. These 111 verses, don't worry, we won't read them all. These 111 verses are pure brilliance from the mouth of Jesus himself. You can think of it as Jesus' manifesto. Here's what life under him looks like. Here's what life under him we ought to aim to live out. It's a superb portrait of the normal life of God's people. It is not intended to be, this is the life of a super Christian, and then here's all the rest of us. But rather, this is what we pursue every day as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one of the most famous speeches ever written. Jesus' message shows that if we take the gospel seriously, and if we aim to live in light of it, then it's going to mean we look dramatically different than we would without Christ. Amen? Now, this sermon covers all kinds of issues. I wrote down just a few of them. This sermon articulates how to live a truly blessed life. It articulates what the place of the church is in the world. 
Jesus talks about anger and lust and divorce, our speech, forgiveness, prayer. He talks about how to handle difficult people who hurt you. Topics like hypocrisy and love and criticism and judgment, heaven and hell. The whole range of human emotions and experiences is found here. And Jesus' sermon addresses in no uncertain terms what the relationship between money and our souls is. Jesus clearly believes that money matters. This monumental passage directs us to leverage our money and possessions for the kingdom of God, to be lovers of God, not lovers of money, to use money, but not to be used by money. It commands us, brothers and sisters, to spend and share for the big kingdom of God, not to hoard for the little kingdom of self. Now, what makes this scandalous? Well, for decades, people have tried to answer that question in this particular way. They have said that in the Western world, the greatest threat to a vibrant Christian life and the greatest threat to vibrant, effective, reproducing churches is not who's in political power despite all the rhetoric that we give that issue. It's not a loss of credibility in the public square. It's not Islam or Mormonism. It's not an overconfidence in science. It's not even secularism itself. Instead, many have indicated the greatest threat to vibrant faith and vibrant churches is greed, particularly in the Western world. So many of us are possessed by our possessions, and we just don't know it. This is an ever-present danger. And so this makes Jesus' words of scandalous importance. Now, as is often the case when we hit a hard passage of Scripture, I want to be honest with you right from the get-go. This uh, message, because this text is going to sting. It is very, very confrontational. And I hope that each of us to whom this would apply would repent today of materialism. But I hope you'll also notice that Jesus offers tremendous care and compassion in this passage. You see, yes, God's Word stings, but God's Word also heals. God's Word also sets free. This is the work that God does through His Word. And so look with me at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. And Becky Patterson is going to come read for us. Uh, Becky is, along with Patrick, one of Church on Mill's adopted missionaries. Uh, She serves in East Asia. And I didn't tell you this ahead of time, this will embarrass you, but I asked uh, Becky to read this text because uh, I believe she and Patrick truly live this out. And so you'll be hearing the word read from a woman who by grace has given her life to the Lord in this way. So would you read for us? Hope you're 
not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your body will be full of darkness. If the darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. Both will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look. Thanks, Becky. Becky and Patrick will be in town in a couple more weeks. I encourage you to connect with them. Uh, let's consider this text today by uh, simply following its movements. And to show you where we're headed, let me articulate them for us. Uh, first, Jesus said that since what we treasure inevitably consumes... And because the heart's throne holds only one, and seeing that the Father's disposition towards his own is love, the whole text builds to tell us that we should leverage every resource for God and his purposes. So since what we treasure will inevitably consume us, and because the throne of our hearts can hold only one master, and especially seeing that the Father's disposition towards His own is love. May we leverage every resource God gives us for His purposes. Church, if we heed these words, by grace our lives will be changed. So let's start with the first. What we treasure inevitably consumes. You probably noticed as Becky read that the passage begins with twin commands. Don't treasure stuff down here. Instead, treasure stuff up there, meaning don't, don't live your life primarily focused on what you can gather up in the world. Instead, live your life storing up treasures in heaven. Now, before you get defensive and think, I'm after your offerings, notice why Jesus said this. It's very clear. He said in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. Friends, human beings are always treasure-oriented. This is part of what it means to be human. We will live for something. We will image, we will mirror something. We will treasure something outside of ourselves as worthy of life. And so Jesus, knowing this, says that He doesn't want us to waste our lives on things that rust out, wear out, or can be stolen. Instead, He wants us to spend our lives on things that will matter forever. You see, church, what we see as most valuable will inevitably become what we worship. And what we worship will inevitably consume us. And so there's a cyclical nature to how this works itself out in our lives. What we see as valuable, then we pursue. And what we pursue consumes. Because the very act of pursuing is an act of worship. And God knows that nothing but Him, nothing but God Himself, deserves that place. Money can exercise tremendous power over us. You don't need me to tell you that. We have all experienced it. If we're not incredibly careful, our lives will be consumed by cars and clothes, houses and electronics, trips and toys, savings and food. And to all of that, Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven where things can't be taken away. Leverage money, possessions, relationships for eternity. Now, to show you that this isn't simply our culture, I'm going to quote several people from long ago. Here is the way one Christian put this about 500 years ago. He said, if what Christ says is true, where our treasure is, there resides our heart, then as the children of this age, speaking of his own, are wont to be intent upon getting things that make for delight in the present life. So believers ought to see it, that after they have learned this life will soon vanish like a dream, they transfer the things that they want truly to enjoy to a place where they will have life unceasingly. Brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father has our very best in mind. He knows what will bring Him glory. And He knows the same as what will bring us joy. He knows that what we treasure will consume us. He knows that it is an ever-present danger that we will spend our lives gathering, saving, spending, perpetually on a treadmill that gets us nowhere. Instead, we are to store up treasures in heaven by giving generously to the work of God. So let's be a church that stores up treasures in heaven by holding all that we own with open hands, sharing with all as we have need. Because our spending ought to reflect both whose we are and where we're headed. Now, there's likely some objections springing up in your mind. Let me try to address just one of them. Jesus is not a communist. He's also not a hippie. He's not suggesting we never save. He's not suggesting we don't own a home. 
He's not saying don't buy health insurance or go to college. He's not saying don't own anything and just be a vagabond mooching off everybody else. Instead, Jesus is saying use money, but don't be used by money. He's saying live for God and use money. Don't live for money and use God. Because what we treasure will consume our lives. May that be God and not money. Now, the second movement in this text is verse 24, where Jesus said, in essence, because the heart's throne holds only one, then we're to leverage every resource for God. Let's read that verse. I wonder if you'd read it aloud with me. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is one of Jesus' most helpful observations about the way life works. You cannot bow to money and to God concurrently. They're, they're incompatible. It won't work. It's like mixing oil and water. The two will not combine. Friends, we cannot live our lives wholly committed to God while simultaneously nurturing greed. We can't love our fellow brothers and sisters well while refusing to share what we have with those who are in need. We can't supremely treasure Jesus and treasure stuff. It just doesn't work. Have you tried? Many of us have, and it does not work. Now, if Jesus is right, then the first thing we ought to do with our paychecks is give to whatever church we are members of. In other words, we ought to prioritize the giving to the work of God over the, the keeping even for our sense of need. And then with everything left over, we ought to hold those things with open hands, sharing our possessions, sharing our homes, sharing all that we have to help people, to love them well. If we go back even earlier than the last quote to a guy named Jerome, here's what he said about this text. Let the greedy hear this. Let him hear that one who is enrolled by the name of Christian cannot serve Christ and riches at the same time. And yet he, meaning Jesus, did not say he who has riches, but he who serves riches. For one who is a slave of riches guards riches like a slave, but one who has shaken off the yoke of slavery distributes them like a master. Isn't that good? The Bible's position on money and possessions is far different, perhaps, than you may have realized. You see, money itself isn't the problem. Money isn't evil. It is not evil to have a lot of money. The issue is the love of money. The issue is serving money. 
The issue is money being God instead of God being God. You see, there's only one room. There's only one place. There's only one throne. Only one room in your heart. And it's for God, not money. Now, one more quote, and this one's long. But I want to show you how long people have been saying these things. Seeking either the convenience or the tranquility of this present life, Scripture calls us to resign ourselves and all our possessions to the Lord's will and to yield to Him the desires of our hearts to be tamed and subjugated, to covet wealth and honors, to strive for authority, to heap up riches, to gather together all those follies which seem to make for magnificence and pomp. Our lust is mad, our desires boundless. Have you found that to be true? That it does not matter how much you have. There's always the desire for more, unless Jesus is first. And yet, on the other hand, wonderful is our fear, wonderful our hatred of poverty, lowly birth, humble condition, and we are spurred to rid ourselves of them by every means. Hence, we can see how uneasy in mind are all persons who in order their lives according to their own plan. We can see how artfully they strive to the point of weariness to obtain the goal of their ambition or greed while on the other hand, avoiding poverty in a lowly condition. In order not to be caught in such snares, godly men must hold to this path. First of all, let them neither desire nor hope for nor contemplate any other way of prospering than by the Lord's blessing. Upon this, then, let them safely and confidently throw themselves and rest. For we ought by no means to desire what men makes men more miserable. If you make life about money, your life will be miserable no matter how much you have. Whether it is an awful little or more than all of us combined. Life lived for money doesn't work. But if you make life about God and the things that spread the gospel, your life will be full even if your bank account's empty. This is simply reality. Jesus is quite plainly describing how life works. And so every resource we have is to be used to honor God and further His kingdom. Because at the core of our lives, there can only be one master. And so church, let's leverage every resource for God and His purposes. And frankly, I can't imagine but a few of us are actually substantially daily living like that. And so there is whole-scale need today for individual and maybe even collective repentance where we have made other things, chiefly money and possessions, Lord, instead of Jesus. 
Is anyone uncomfortable yet? I am. But would you listen again to the last paragraph and hear the comfort and care of Jesus? It says in verse 25, Therefore, so because of everything we've just said, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, or your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Now, we have to do some imagining there. But consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They're neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, this was the king of Israel at the very height of Israel's power and possessions. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, again, we have to imagine, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, that part we know well, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Therefore, don't be anxious. Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Brothers and sisters, the disposition of God the Father toward you is love. God the Father who has all the resources that exist, His disposition toward you is love. He cares more than you could ever imagine. And because of that care, we don't have to live life on the hamster wheel of anxiety over possessions and money and clothes and even food. We are incredibly valuable to a gracious God. And this God has endless resources. He will take care of you. God, Christian, will take care of you. Now, what does he ask for from us? He says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Meaning, only God on the throne of your heart. Only God consuming. Only God having first place. Only God 
by grace through faith being the object of our worship. God says when we live like that, no basic need will go unmet. Christian, you don't have to live under the crushing weight of anxiety. Did you hear that word in that paragraph? came up four times. It's as though Jesus can understand our hearts and see that apart from him, we are predisposed, we are given over to worry and anxiety, particularly about money and possessions. And yet after this rebuke, This great section ends not with more rebuke, but with the open arms of God saying, come to me, seek me first. I love you. And you may not have all that you want, but I will give you all that you need. You see, if we hold things loosely because we treasure God tightly, then anxiety will dissipate and trust will expand. Jesus teaches us that we have two choices about how we think about money, either trust or anxiety. That's it. We will either trust God or we will worry. Can you see that as you look in your own heart? God is worthy of our trust. We can count on God. Again, you may not get the big house and wear the fancy clothes and drive the nicest car and eat the best food. But if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, we will not be without the very necessities of life. Now, what a tremendous vision of life this is, isn't it? What a tremendously helpful, life-giving, hopeful dream Jesus cast. Now, what in the world do you do with a sermon like this? Let me make some practical suggestions, and then Tad will come pray for us. I think if you want to summarize the entire thing, then Jesus is telling us, to treasure and trust God. To treasure and trust God. You see, if we center our lives on the things of this world, the result will be anxiety. And no matter how much we make, it will never be enough. But if we center our lives on Jesus, the result will be joyful trust. And that is not something you do once and then move on something you got to do over and over and over and over and over. We are bombarded everywhere we turn with the message that what we buy will make us happy. And it is a lie. If we lived in a poor society, we would know it's a lie. The problem is we live in an affluent society. And so the majority of us 
can go out and buy something and it will provide momentary, temporary happiness. And pretty soon we set it aside and we go out and buy something else. And we spend the rest of our lives doing the same stupid thing over and over and over and over and over. I have been, I've had the unique pleasure of traveling to many, many countries, most of which are far less affluent than us and been able to tangibly observe people who have less and are most often much happier than we. Because they don't buy into the lie that what you buy makes you who you are. So we need to daily remember to treasure and trust God. Learning to see God as the source of our provision and money as nothing more than the middleman, the, the tool he uses to provide for us. So I'd encourage you over lunch today to have conversations about what affections you are currently most intently focused on and to repent where money has taken that first place and to consistently, even if it's small, prioritize giving to your church family. Because scripturally speaking, the biblical antidote for greed is giving. And the remedy for anxiety is to trust God. And sometimes, even if our affections aren't fully into it, if you will, then what you'll find is if you seek to give first and to confess to brothers and sisters second and to plead with God to increase trust, then the affections will follow. But church, above all else, we must nurture our relationship with Jesus knowing Him must be supreme. Treasuring Jesus through beholding Him in His Word Seeking Him in prayer. Discipling one another faithfully. Sharing the gospel with those who have yet to hear. These are the, the, the avenues through which our trust in God will increase. Now before we close, I think we've got to lovingly speak to those who are here today who have yet to trust Christ. Do you understand that Jesus offers himself to you to be your treasure? In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the will of God, to us. Non-Christian, this passage describes financial generosity as the grace of God. Now, that's a rather odd way of talking. But a man named Paul was going around to churches, raising support to take back to 
Churches in an area where there was a great famine, where, where people were starving. And he described the generosity of Christians as the grace of God. And then he said that people were begging for the opportunity to help other Christians in other parts of the world. And that they gave to the point it hurt. And that they did so joyfully. Now that begs the question, why? Why on earth would anyone do that? Well, it's because they gave the grace of God because they'd already been given the grace of God. Verse 9 shows us that. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Friend, Jesus had all the resources of heaven at His disposal. And roughly 2,000 years ago, he gave all that up. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, became a man, and lived 100% God, 100% man, a life of perfect obedience to the Father. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. And then in his poverty... He gave himself on a cross, dying as a substitute for our sin, in order that the full penalty for all the sins of God's people would be, saved, would be paid. And three days later, he rose again in victory over sin, death, and the devil. And so, non-Christian, when the plate, when the offering plate gets passed in a moment, we're not asking you to give of the grace of God because you have yet to receive it. But would you receive it now? Jesus offers himself. Turn from sin and turn to him. And all of Jesus' resources. His rightful place before the Father will be yours. Under Tad, would you come and pray about these things for us? Pray. Father, we thank you for the word that we've heard this morning. So grateful to be a part of a church that treasures your word, that preaches the whole of Scripture skip over the more difficult confrontational passages or topics. Your word is life to us. And God, you are a creator. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. We are created in your image. Yet when we compare our character to yours, we're left devastated. You are holy and righteous in every way. And even the good things that we do are often tainted by poor motives or by selfish hearts. And yet you love us. You gave everything to us and for us. You sent your son to take our sins on a humiliating and evil cross. You gave us your word to help us to understand our sinfulness and our need for a savior. 
You gave us your Holy Spirit to guide us into all things righteous. And you gave us all the possessions of the earth to steward. So forgive us for our selfishness, for falsely believing that everything we have is actually ours, for spending first on ourselves and only after giving back to you what we might or might not have left over. Forgive us for living lives of excess, for confusing our wants as needs. Help us to be people that shows we love you by how we steward the possessions that you've given to us. We pray too this morning for our missionary partners, the Kinney family. We're grateful for the time they were able to spend in the U.S. these past few months. Thank you for their example to us as a family willing to obey your call to be missionaries, even at great cost to them. We ask that you would make smooth their transition to life in Southeast Asia. That you would help them to trust you as they make new connections with people that have never heard the name of Jesus. We thank you for the financial gifts of Southern Baptists all over the world that allow the Kinneys and many others to continue. And finally, we offer praise to you that you have surrounded us with a church family that can worship together, a church family that loves you and loves each other. May we continue to be unified despite any differences that we might have, for the only thing that truly matters is that we are one in Christ. And so we pray in the name of the one who binds us together, Jesus. Amen.